Trauma Healing Learnings based on one mom's journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. As you may know at this point in the story of Archer's spinal cord injury and our journey to recovery, he had just passed his swallow test, allowing him the ability to taste real food for the first time in over 37 days. But due to complications from the injury, eating wasn't easy. And Archer, a wonderful cook and a lover of food, was also cautious and tentative, for good reason, as his central nervous system was dysregulated from the severing of his spinal cord, and every morsel of food was causing a chemical reaction in his body that he did not have the innervation to work through his system. Archer's experience was further complicated by the inability to taste much. His taste buds weren't the same due to the sinus pressure related to the buildup of infection from bacteria that began in his lungs as we were awaiting another surgery to remove the gunk. But for a boy who had such a joyful, meaningful relationship to food, well, it was tough for me to watch this experience with food. And I prayed he would find joy in eating soon again. I felt a strong relationship to the enjoyment of taste and texture of food and its relationship to overall well-being. Spinal cord injuries and other medical conditions like Crohn's or any eating disorder can alter a person's relationship and approach to food which can alter an everyday outlook on life. We'll explore this today in Trauma Healing Learning 5, Somatic Healing Through Food. This traumatic healing addresses the intersection of medical trauma or emotional trauma and our individual and societal relationship with how we care for ourselves, including how we nurture ourselves with food. Today, I talk with Tracy Brown, a registered dietitian based in Florida, who has an interest in somatic healing as I do, both in the context of trauma healing and our overall well-being and our general relationships to our bodies. My guest and I bring in ideas from body-based trauma healing methods like somatic experiencing, as well as her training as a registered dietitian working with patients with eating disorders and more. So, settle in. Take a deep breath and bring some awareness to the ways you nurture yourself 
or might consider nurturing yourself with a new relationship to food. Here we go. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 5, Somatic Healing Through Food. The description that you give of being a nervous system health specialist and mentioning that there might not actually uh, be a coined phrase other than the one that you give that to that, what does that mean to you and why do you refer to yourself as yeah. such? Yeah, well, I, I really feel like I help people have a here now experience of what's happening in their system and help them differentiate is a threat, is this discomfort, or is this just something new that I don't have an experience with to feel like I didn't know I had a name or navigate, do I feel safe or not? Because I'm another therapist, so I really just mostly work with people with their food, their body, their movement, body image, and just their felt sense of being in the role with the body. So I mostly focus on the body and your experiences inside of it. I guess that's how I would define what I'm doing. So with that focus on the body, but without being a therapist by background, what kind of training have you had? Yeah, so I'm a dietitian, and then my training really specifically is in the eating disorder field. So all the eating disorders, chronic dieting, dysmorphia, everything you can think of that people could possibly struggle with a dysregulated relationship with food and, and movement. And, and uh, most of these things happen because people have had relational developmental trauma ruptures, diet culture, you know, feeling so oppressed by that. And then sometimes just bad things happen. We have difficult experience with food and it gets overcoupled with if I eat that food, bad things will happen. So health anxieties, things like that. So my training really is in like relationship with food. So there's just a lot of great experts out there that do that really, really specifically in my field. And it's kind of this bridge profession, you know, between like, here's a dietitian that helps you with your dialysis needs and then a counselor. So we kind of are the bridge between just how we view food and then how we use that viewing is how we take care of ourselves. I would like to think that in the future, all dietitians would have the same worldview that you carry. My experience with dietitians was my first experience and and indeed my only experience with the title dietitian was with our son Archer when we were in the hospitals and the primary role of a dietitian was either to regulate calories or in the case of of Archer was to fig was to encourage and figure out how to get as many calories into his body which meant um, cream puffs and bagels and, you know, anything, you know, fried chicken or anything else sort of under the sun just to pump in calories. And I was actually a bit distressed about that myself. So maybe I should be taking a look at my own. And perhaps there were lots of learnings there, whether they were cues to tell me that there was something that was a threat to my son or whether they were you know, you know, who knows messages, you know, from yeah. my own life. I, I felt that it was a very narrow view of his health to just, uh, look at calories or just look at trying to, you know, get him uh, fattened up a bit. So I'd love to, you know, talk about that, but, but before we do, I know you were going to share with us first some modalities that you use. And so maybe that will help 
lay the field for us about well, what it is we can I did sort of explain about. some of it quite quite a bit. So, you know, we do focus on relationship with food and that's not dismissing the role of nutrition, but really in terms of like biochemistry, fed is always best. You have to get your needs met. And we don't always have all the same um, access and interest to like like nutraceuticals like way up the top. You know, really it's like fed is best. And being able to honestly be regulated with our eating really impacts our digestion. So you can be eating the most nutrient-dense, you cook all your food yourself diet in the world, but if you're like angsting over every molecule, your gut is not going to digest all that. And you're going to be in this constant state of like hypervigilance. That's not a place where we rest and digest anyway. So we're way better off, I think, holding nutrition pretty lightly. Like it's important. And our body has a lot of wisdom. Somatic experiencing teaches us that, that the body holds the sensations and the memories and the information about what's too much and not enough, you know, in our experience. So our bodies do the same thing with our, our uh, from our esophagus to coming out. And most of our information from our body is like body up, body up to the brain anyways. 80, 90% of our messaging goes up, not down. So our brain's super powerful. But it needs all that information from the body to tell your body, hey, I need more carbs, I need more fat, more water. And there are specific signals that you know we each get to give us those indications. So that's the method I teach is like learn. I mean, when we have dysregulation, it's not always accurate. Hunger, fullness, let's say, I don't know all the, the details of your son's injuries, but you know, we don't always get signals. So you have to rely a little bit on pragmatic or some intellectual education. But you know, for most of us, you know, we get information. We have just learned to override it because we, we think we know better than our bodies. Yeah. A lot. It's so powerful, that combination, and to think of it as a modality of education and awareness. Yeah. You know, Bottom up, really top happening. down, right? So I'm wondering with this somatic focus, which is near and dear to my heart, how it is that you married uh, the somatic mm. focus with the nutrition, holding nutrition lightly as you do. Yeah, so I will, there was a couple instances for me. I don't mind sharing my own personal with it. Is that I was probably about four years into my non-dieting sort of counseling career, and one day I was sitting with a client, and I knew she had trauma, you know, relational trauma, abuse, and I was sitting there with her, and I've taught her like a lot of top-down already, but very relationally, and tried to help her be in the space and notice it you know, just by instinct that she, I could feel like if she wasn't fully in the room with me, didn't feel safe, even though she could say the right words that I know you're here to help me, but her body didn't say that. So I was picking up on it. And then one day she came in and things were going really good. And for a couple of weeks, and when I say good, really well, like trying to honor hunger, trying to have full permission to eat, like honestly being less body bashing toward herself. And they came in and like, it didn't exist full-on dissociated coming in, I'm like, okay, there's, there's parts or there's something missing here that, you know, I don't fully know how to do because I can't teach her anything right now. There's nothing to teach. She can't connect with me. So when you can't connect, you can't learn or take risk or feel what's here for you. That might be good. So I just went on that. This was 2011. I just went on this journey of like, I need to kind of leave the disorder world because we can get pretty cognitive and behavior changing and what is happening in this person's like physical experience that she can't be here with me. 
So I just went down the breaking the tiger body keeps the score rabbit hole. And my first training was in Hakomi. And then, which is like kind of a contacting body sensations when somebody's in the room kind of approach. And then studied some sensory motor psychotherapy, even though I'm not a therapist. I can't take these trainings officially, but I can like learn from the character strategies and the body orientations of feeling collapsed or anxious or everything's too much for me. And I just kept learning and learning and learning. And I would learn something and within my scope, play with it, with the food, the body, whatever, learn like kind of like do no harm. Like it's not going to hurt anybody to like orient by looking out the window. When you put all that together, like I saw all the reasons why people eating disorders, it just became really clear. It's not really, I feel fat as I feel uncomfortable or I got to eat all food as like, I feel uncomfortable and I don't have another, I don't have a window or the resourcing to be here. So I'm just going to like attach the cultural narrative of like thin is good and fat is bad. And that's my attachment, how I'm going to feel safe or my behaviors. That's how I'm going to get some relief. And here we are. I'm just kind of kept combining a bunch of stuff from my scope, you know, in terms of like food and body and movement and, and just in general, using sensory tools to help people. This is not magic. This has just helped help you to be here. So you can unglue from that trauma sensation, that feeling, that part, that whatever. So you can witness what it's saying you have to do with your food or not right now to survive. And it's not those times. And like, it's now time. It's not memory time over and over and over again until we like, oh, I have an identity now and I don't have to do this anymore. Right, right. So over, over that's over. The, the big scope. That's like this client taught me by just her. The, the client sounds <laughs> like she set you on your own path, your own And then journey. part mm-hmm. two of that is that like, you know, I had a young, my daughter's now almost, this time is almost 11, but she was four months old at the time too. And I was just like new mom, birth. I could see it every month, like, something's not right in me. And I noticed how I was, you know, attachment and all that stuff with her. It's like, there are certain months that are just harder for me for some reason that don't make sense. And I'm like, okay, I believe what's happening in my system is something I was missing. So it took me really, especially to be real attachment theory oriented as well with what I do, because, you know, if you don't have enough of that baseline structure to like know that, you want it and you're here and you're safe, even if it was on accident, not on purpose, misattunement, generational trauma, however it got there, it's, you feel it in your system. Yeah, it's really been a, a real journey for me too, to know that mm-hmm. um, when we think of trauma and, and trauma healing, oftentimes people will think that there had to have been like just this major crisis, but indeed yeah. it's the first time, you know, we experience separation. <laughs> And uh, it's often when we are, you know, little, little babies uh, and that Mm. the notion of attachment theory. That's the beauty of like the work we love, Louise. It's like, we understand polyvagal theory to the the extent that I was going to ask you if you said it was Stephen Ford. Yeah, Yeah, of course. You know, it's, yeah, we, you know, really break it down. And and I see certainly digestively um, what we can ingest and digest have a lot to do with what state we're in. Now I do a lot of work with my clients with that. If you're in hyperactivation, fight or flight, you diminish digestive enzymes. You have decreased gastric motility. So you're not going to get the juices of life to get the desire to eat anyway that much. Or if your only comfort for like activation was food or restricting, 
you're going to do that. It's going to get overcoupled. So I do a lot of work of helping people differentiate and build that window of tolerance. So because normative eating happens in the window of tolerance, it comes from hunger and fullness, no choices, not obsess. That's only where that happens. You know, I'm, I'm wondering about weight, that something I have thought might be from uh, obesity, for instance. It has, uh, I've thought about this and it has crossed my mind that there could be generational trauma, if not just, you know, collective trauma through generations for why someone mm -hmm. is what we would call medically obese, not even because they eat that much. Uh, but because of also what has been handed down to them through their That's traumatic right. history. Do you, can you say anything about that? Well, I see everything. So I know that just like the trees outside, if you looked outside, there's a variety of plant life and they all get from the same soil, yet they're all very really diverse. Humans are like that. So they're going to be just always naturally bigger people. They're always have been, they're always will be. But yeah, our sense of safety is going to impact all of our organ systems. If you don't have enough safety on board, there will be dysfunction. So in some people, you know, chronic dysfunction, I think if you look at the ACE studies, there's a lot of really good studies around the ACE study, but really much better than that. Like all the studies are doing on chronic you know, trauma and, and threat and stress. If you've got some certain genetics to be tripped up at some point in, in life, they can get tripped on. And yeah, I've had lots of people who do like the, actually some of my, largest clients were some of the best dieters I've ever worked with. That is just it. They never, they weren't binge eaters. They weren't emotional eaters. They were just never going to be small. And their bodies did kind of like dorsal it up basically to survive. I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I think a lot of it comes from throughout the ages of, you know, where, mm -hmm. where people came from culturally, what part of the world, Absolutely. what the Absolutely. agricultural landscape looked like with regard to feast and famine and what was available mm -hmm. and un not available with That's regard right. to scarcity. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then there's, I would say the majority of my clients do come from basically diet trauma in terms of like they were rejected from the jump if they were the larger kid, either by their own family, friends, teachers, pediatricians, so you're chronically in a state of like not belonging and hypervigilance that way too. And that can lead to all kinds of behavioral things that just keep on up in the ante on the physiologic stress over time as well. That's the majority of people that I work with that just, you know, they were always bigger or their bodies were meant to be bigger and then that wasn't allowed. It doesn't, it's not mirrored back in their culture that it's okay to like just be who you are, take care of the body you got, and enjoy life and, and, and be okay. So a lot of people do just chronically face discrimination because of it, you know, from where they can sit, where they, where, where, where there's, what's yeah, accessible. Yeah, too large, too small, too much, all the things. too little. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, all the things. So it can be a chronic issue. So some people do really, you know, I'm really sensitive to say larger body people take offense to like, I didn't have all this trauma. I'm just big. And I need people to stop being mean to you about, me about it. Like, everybody grow up and get over it, basically. But some people are just that. And I just want to respect that experience because some people do feel like that, well, people are in bigger body because of trauma. And like, some people, a lot of people not. But they do have to deal with the, some of those stereotypes. Or they do have to, like, get the lecture at the doctor's office that, you know, yeah, you need an antibiotic. But you, you can lose weight, too, you know. I'm like, I'm not here for that. I need to just, I got to sort of strut through. Or I need a wrist or a band for um or oh my 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 wrist hurts well we wait like how is weight loss going to fix my wrist and, you know there, there's just this chronic 
anticipation about not being listened to as well that like people do face all the time. So eating disorders and this dysregulation come in all shapes and sizes. So there, I think there's all kinds of reasons why we look like how we look. It sounds as though that your clients would would find you um, and how fortunate they would be to find you to really reclaim feeling that they're whole and that they belong. And that's um, and that's that's, the hope. Yeah, that's the hope. I I love your analogy about the earth and how from the earth spring so many different, you know, plants. I've oftentimes taken a similar view just about the great forest, you know, from, from source, from God, and that Mm -hmm. got this forest and there are so many different varieties and that's why it's this amazing forest. um, Right. I would think that like God didn't make junk. So if he didn't make it, if diversity is everywhere else, why wouldn't it be in humans as well? Yeah. And that's a tough people one because, you know, humans. Can know, I we just pause on that? Yeah, yeah I, I think that I think it's a really profound notion, concept, statement for for anyone to think about themselves and their bodies. And of course, we're going to be you know talking about with nutrition and trauma, but just generally that. Wherever the emphasis is at any given time in our media world, you know, from the 1920, you know, the 1800s, right? What what was really you know important and and fashionable right. the way women looked right. then, you know, versus the 1920s versus the 1960s versus you know right. the 1970s. I mean, it's, it's so amazingly different. The the diversity is so is so needed. It's yeah. really around health and well being. That's right. You know, the, when people are like, well, what about health? They'll get this concept in one hand for people feel so freeing and so threatening at the same time. It's like, because <gasps> we've got two types of programming. We've got, well, get thin to like belong, be attractive, you know, be, be whatever, and then be thin to be healthy. And it's like, well, these things aren't, they don't go together. It's like, you can pursue health wherever you are. Even if you're struggling with mobility or, and, and if you're able-bodied now, there's a different story here, but if you're a person like beyond deconditioned, because I, every, I only move when I'm on a diet because it's like a tool, a torture tool to get me to look different. And when I don't, I don't. And you're yo-yoing there or deconditioned from being from a computer screen for the last two plus years, living your life in the house. Cause it's happened to all of us from yes, some level. Absolutely. Right. It's like, Oh, you know, that's part of having a body that, you know, at the beginning it hurts where it's a little hard and it does get easier, but not because we're bad and shameful. It's just cycles of life and fitness and what we're doing and what our other priorities are. People tell me in accidental ways, not directly. Usually we get there and it's, it's like, Oh yeah. Bodies like to move. Even people who aren't big exercisers find that like, there's something that like, doesn't feel like a burden or a chore but you know when you take off the like change my body game it's a little different but we can find it if your needs aren't you know if your relationship with care nurturance aka food has been tampered with you're gonna like lose out on those early years or whenever whenever that happened to you of like knowing what your body signals are that they're valid and you're entitled to take care of it versus something from outside invalidating it and telling you, no, you're wrong. You don't need that much. Like that's the wrong food. Like you eat too much. That's not enough. All that. 
you know, you have to take in all that, you're neurosecting all that information. Well, what's going to keep you safe in this relationship? Listening to this, listen to yourself. What, what came first for you when you were helping clients? Was it the nutritional piece or was it the trauma piece? I'll tell you my funny, I'll tell you the funny story. I had me in sort of high school and recovered and I didn't really have like this whole embodiment piece. I was just like, okay, I want to be a normal eater. What I'm doing is super dysfunctional with food, with exercise, with everything. And can you give an example of what you mean by super dysfunctional? I was, I was restricted. I binged. I, I had exercise addiction. And none of these things were embodied. They were all based on what my so head So I'm going to pause you. I'm going to slow you mm -hmm. down. Um, can mm -hmm. you define what you mean so people, listeners could understand? Like, what yeah. does exercise addiction mean? Or Meaning, look like? Meaning, yeah. So if you feel guilty for missing, if you feel like you you just you have to do enough, you have to do it to, like, prove that you're worthy, you're, you're strong, you're, you're safe. I mean, I used it, honestly, as, like, a, for me, it was a, it was a break from the sympathetic. Like looking back as a practitioner, like what was I doing all that for? It's like, oh, I was always so hyper. I was always so much in hyperactivation that I used it to like kind of numb me out, basically. So I, I use it because uh, I couldn't almost feel to give you a little, ironically, to give you a little bit of rest, staying active, yeah. but a but a bit of uh, time when you couldn't. It was like that flight response where you just there's no there's no safety. I couldn't find safety, so that's the wrong. When we talked about the window tolerance, you have a faux safety window and then the real safety. Exercise was a faux safety for me. Of like, if I slow down, I can't yield. There's nothing here for me. So if I yield, I'm going to die. Because those feelings are so big and so built up. So you had this overactivated response that you were aware of. So you stuff. had an yeah, addiction like, to yeah. exercising. And then you also mm -hmm. mentioned something about uh, your own nutrition. And what was it that you Well, so it? I grew up in a really normal eating household, minus the crash dieting mom and grandma like chronically, on and off, on and off. But I didn't really pay attention to that. My English was really about just managing hyperactivation. Looking back, it was, that was the function of it. You know, it was one of those things that I just got, I was just really blessed to have a few people that could just were loving and truthful enough to like, look, the way you're thinking isn't congruent with how nutrition works, how bodies work. And that helped me a little bit, but really the relationship was what was healing. I actually met a person who does what I do, but this is forever ago, like 1996, that how, no, I, again, I, a gift because there weren't very many back then. That's just unheard of where I lived. It was a very small area. And she would just sit with me like, well, tell me more about that. Instead of like, you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to eat more and you have to gain weight. It was... She, she, she gave you just such she safety. Space. She just gave me some space yeah. to like feel without any shame about it, without it being too much, no gaslighting, you know, it was just... And that was like, oh... I never, I just never had that before. So I thought all dietitians did that. This is the funny part. This, you asked me about how they get your nutrition. I'm like, the funny part is, I'm the dad. I hobble, hop off to school, college, thinking that that's what dietitians do. I'm not saying that all nutrition science is bad, and I learned a lot of awesome stuff. But the bias is, is, is fatness is bad, and so I go there. And a lot of the curriculum is about, you know, weight management and all these things. Yeah. And I was looking at what they would coach, like teach you to 
whatever disease state you had, like, well, wait, we'll fix everything. And I was just like, well, changing my body didn't do anything but disaster on my life. So let's right here. And I just started questioning everything. And I was that person sitting in the back of the room, like, okay, what do I need to say to get an A? But what is, and I started getting curious of what is actually people's experience with their food and their health and relationship with it. And I just kind of hang, held on to that relationship with that dietitian all those years to like, either I'm going to do something like that. And I don't know how you do that. Cause I'm not learning it here, but I'm going to get out and either do it or just have another career. So I pretty quickly just did the things I needed to do, you know, the, the education and the internship and the license and all the things. And I just recognize a lot of what I learned, I'm going to have to unlearn to actually help people be their own food and nutrition experts. And not feel like they have a defective body. Even if their health isn't great, you don't deserve to me to feel bad about it. Let's what's, what do you want to do? What are your values? And let's start where you're at. Trauma piece came in when that's not enough. Right. I recognize like, Oh, you know, I did a lot of all my work with the counseling and what I learned post all that, you know, years of training was like relationship is what heals. So you combine that with the nutrition pragmatism basically and, and decoding body image, like I feel fat, all that. And then it's like, Oh, there's another layer here. Like people don't just get better. If they don't, they don't get better. They don't feel safe. Even if they know everything about what they need to do, that's not enough. So that's trauma piece came after. And really, you know, for me, what I, what I hear and I'm just, just tickled about it is that it at, at its root is, is this relational conflict theory, you know, this fracture. Right. And yes. then we think about wherever our love or our specialty or where we feel called that we can take that yeah. worldview and apply it and have, and see, and use it as a lens. And in your case, to look at, you know, food, to look yeah. at nutrition, mm -hmm. to look mm -hmm. at wellness that comes from the quality of what it is that we intake. Having so much spaciousness for like, we could still be well and you don't need to eat a hundred percent RDA like meal, every single meal. Our bodies give us a lot of space. You might want to define RDA for our listeners. Oh, like, like recommended daily allowances of blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, I say like eat the food, have a little nutrition knowledge, and then mostly from hunger and fullness, eat from pleasure, be present to what you're doing. And you'll know if you're using food in a way that like it can't fully serve you. You'll, you'll know, you will feel dysfunctional. You'll feel anxious. You'll feel so you pause on that. How, yeah. how would you counsel your clients that they will know? What might you practice? Be advising so the beginning them to is like, for? I slow, like I know I'm talking fast today, but in session, I'm like, draw all these experiences out. How do you know inside that you wanted the whatever? So you're really food. helping them to focus on that body awareness. Yeah, over yeah, and over. The cues of the body, over and over. Hungerfulness cues, really breaking it down. I've had people where I've had to like, I know this is a little meticulous. This is not forever. But for example, every hour, just this week, what do you notice with like, you ate this food and what are your different experiences per hour? Sometimes I have to do that with people, especially they're really, some people are very, they come in very intuitive. They're just very hypervigilant from expecting that no one listens. And once you like, provide some safety and presence, like boom, imagery just comes up. They know how they feel. And we just got to like, okay, now I'm practicing your life. Yeah. It's amazing. with just a one experience, how that can change. Uh, some people a like, you're like amazed. They come in either not 
a lot of a lot of people are very their eating's chaotic, so that they're not usually they're not eating enough, and they feel like they can't stop eating all night because they have this huge deficit. They don't see it that way because they're focused on like again because there are cultural labels like eating too much food is bad and eating less is good, and so they are maybe dissociative or in sympathetic all day long, or they're just like I can't eat because I'm wrong and bad, and they don't understand that like the eating that's kind of big the body demands at night is because of the early restriction. So to just teaching that in general is like, well, that just makes sense. Well, why, why do you suppose with all the experience that you have, Tracy, with people coming to you with so many different stories of how they suffer around yeah. food and different messages, why do you suppose that uh, the dietitian school, for instance, still focuses on weight management? Well, you're asking me the controversial big question when people get free you don't need diets anymore you don't need experts anymore i'm just gonna say it how i feel it the vast majority i mean a huge percentage of people go into health fields doctors dietitians nurses physical therapists why do we care so much about people and there and we want to be in the muck with their suffering because we've experienced stuff so a lot of people go into these professions with a nod of their own disorder so you've got a bunch of disordered people in these fields. That that is absolutely one of my um, hypotheses a, for blank for blank okay. of an eye that most people who would be working in, for instance, intensive care units at hospitals, ERs, are probably also experiencing secondary trauma, and that the totally. medical system itself is a traumatized system. Yeah, it's hard. No, when it, this, you can probably. When we get frustrated with the care we get from different providers, when we when we look at it from a trauma-informed lens and the conditions in which people are trained, I mean, I feel like I was hazed enough, let alone how doctors and other people feel, is it's, you, there's no ventral. <laughs> you're just, you're winging it with like, you're, you're, you're wanting to do good and you're sympathetic to get through. What do you, what do you suppose are some simple ways that people who are in hospitals caring for their children or loved ones and their mm -hmm. loved ones are in the hospital for a period of time when it comes to food, what are some simple ways that they could begin to shape the relationship between food and nutrition mm -hmm. and, and trauma for their loved one who's in the hospital, which is likely a traumatic experience to one, oh. one degree to another? I would just speak to the caregivers, like maybe yeah, the family and friends or spouses. It's as much as it, it's hard to see it's important. It's really important that you get yourself some time to take care of yourself. As hard it is to peel yourself away or not be in it in your head 24-7, tending, tending to your body so you can be more present. And I don't know how many like small tools you want me to use from just a somatic perspective. but No, I'd love, to, love to hear some, okay. please. Oh, yeah. So I do a lot of things with hyperactivation around using your body as a resource. So, so, so this would be a tip for a, a family member who is providing, who's bedside, let's say. To I would family say member. anybody who's not in that bed. And, and we'll talk about the vice versa in a second, but nurses, doctors, care staff, family. Um, one, I mean, have your own support where you can just dump and not be strong all the time. That's important, I think, just as a human, to have a safe place to just be and feel and, yeah, and not get, yeah, that, again, that secondary trauma that most of the time we can experience when witnessing and 
all that too much, not enough. Sensory-wise, I just think it's interesting how small things can be feel really regulating or grounding. Pushing against walls and, and door frames. I mean, of course, walking is an easy thing. Being able to look out windows and just orient, like, if you're feeling really, like, again, too much, not enough, and you just, like, I can't think, I can't feel, I don't want to do this. Just let yourself kind of gaze at the window or your eyes where you land and let yourself land on the good or good enough or relatively or neutral even and just see if you can notice it. Oh, huh. I didn't really notice that hummingbird feeder. It's purple. I haven't seen one before. And if you notice some like some pleasure or whatever, I know that sounds really simple, but you're definitely shifting your state by just settling in and bringing some goodness with you. So it's in there in the midst of the suck, basically. Flight or fight means different things than freeze and please. So just know that like, I could try this thing. It didn't work well. That wasn't right for your system. It's okay. It's okay. Your body will give you cues like, oh, I can feel myself settle or I can feel myself more here. These aren't magic tools. They're just, they, they're just there to help you get here enough than to use your bigger resources, like connecting with people, feeling vulnerable, praying, like cognitively, like working through something, whatever you do. So I'd really like to know as well for you, Tracy, if you might have some tips for families who are in hospitals with their loved ones now on the other side of the equation, because I, I love how you expanded, not just for the families, but for the nurses and the staff as well. But if we think about for the person who's in the hospital bed, how it is that we might, uh, as family members, advocate, and as nurses, right, seeing that they could change the way things are in hospitals, advocate uh, for the somatic uh, nutrition or, or what I believe you have also called some intuitive nutrition, but, but other kinds of things that might be important for well-being and health. Do you, can you share with us some ideas that you have about that for people in hospitals for their loved ones in the hospital bed? Oh, goodness. So... Yeah, hospitals are tricky because the job there is really going from probably a life or death situation to get people out. So there might not be like optimizing everything at that second. You know, everything's a triage. Just like when we have trauma work, we're stabilization and doing some of the processing and integration post-traumatic. So it's one of those situations. If somebody feels really, really strongly that there's a, you know, it, it's okay to go to somebody you feel, I think, um, as, a, as a patient or a post-patient advocate, is there something you feel like would be helpful that you know maybe is helpful for that person's system to help advocate for them? So like, hey, I know we don't typically do this, but can you actually check out this formula or can we do the food in this kind of way? I think asking is a big deal because I think most of the time people, and just sometimes we get pushed back, but I think most of the time people want to care and make that experience as less bad as possible. I think so. I think so many of, of the medical teams and staff, uh, they just don't know. Uh, in similar yeah. ways that I didn't know either, right? right? I'm, we're, all, well, we're all learning in this that's together. Right. When I worked, and this is forever ago, when I did my internship in like forever ago, you know, early 2000s, when I worked on like ICU floors, I mean, really the goal wasn't high level nutraceuticals. It really was like being able to get like enough calories in because when you're in an injury there, the activity factor is sky. I can't like a person's caloric needs are like times four times 10. It's so high. 
that a little bit of extra like vitamin C is not the thing that's going to help. So looking at like the, the big picture. Yeah, I remember, for instance, with our son, Arch, right. Archer needed like right. 10, 12,000 calories a day. Just so he can make Just his, to like, breathe. Just, to, just breathe. to breathe. Yeah. And his organ mass and all that. And that's kind of it. So they're not really concerned with like, are you getting enough fiber from chia seeds they're just right like, are you looking at b12 are you right no yeah. they're looking at the labs like how are things going that stuff that's kind of for later and if you can intuitively eat or not it's not really a priority because <laughs> you're getting that level of care so those are things that are kind of for later so i think it's important sometimes our brains want to get hooked do do this like it, when we can't control anything else we want to like how's the nutrition or how's the things and it's like he's getting what he needs what is it you if you, you can say like, well, is everything okay? And you could ask for explanations. Well, like I am accustomed to feeding my person a certain kind of way and you're getting the cream puffs. And it's like, look, his, you cannot get calories from salad. <laughs> it, it, you're not going to help him. That's it's almost like what we know in our culture is healthy. Calories are healthy. It's it, like big calories in certain circumstances. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that, that sort of even yeah. in, a, in a hospital setting. Yeah, you know, a yeah. bit, even that sequencing from kind of the uh, crisis to the stabilization. And yeah, as you yeah. as you mentioned, you know, calories. And then later you can pay attention to other things. Say, say more the about details. that. Well, when you get in these stress situations, some injuries create a lot of hypermetabolic states. So a lot of people who are... It's funny. So I'll give, me, I'll give you a my world example, then I'll talk about you know brain injury or those kind of things. And again, my my knowledge is limited because it's just been a long time, and my niche is something different. But for example, if you've got a body that's been undernourished for a while, you know it could happen in two months, it can happen in six months, two years, whatever. If you're at a deficit, naturally to to get back to equilibrium, you're going to go higher than what other people might think you need to heal all this cellular damage. You, you eat yourself when you diet. There's just no other way around it. Yeah. People think that, like say, dieting is super innocuous. No big deal, I'm just eat myself and I'll wear size four and everything's great. Your cells don't feel that way. Your brain doesn't feel that way. So you're naturally going to want to eat more food. And again, to get back to homeostasis, to allow that, but our culture says, well, you messed up. You did it wrong. You ate too much. You ate in a way that's not appropriate. And then you don't trust it because of the narrative versus like, you know what, this body needs what it needs right now. So, so if we go back to the hospital months. setting yeah, go and, back. and you've got, you know, someone who is uh, trauma has had a medical trauma, trauma yeah. to the body, um, mm -hmm. even from mm -hmm. surgery. That's and, right. And then they're moving into stabilization. What, what is it from your perspective as a nutritionist and also with yeah. a somatic focus, what is it that you would recommend for families or for medical staff for that person in that bed? Well, at that point, if I'm just imagining you're moving from this level of QD to another, is that you're probably just going to be fed pretty normatively and you're going to have, hopefully, your appetite's increasing and or like getting to where it needs to go because you're having some nervous system health stability. You're not in such flight response, threat response. And I would assume if a person didn't pre-exist coming in to the hospital with any disorder, if they're just a pretty, like, normal eater, they don't think much about it, they're just going to regulate just fine. You know, I think it's important, yeah, add, if somebody wanted to, just because of more body healing needs to happen and maybe rehabilitation, protein needs might be higher, 
if there's a lot of infections, they might need probiotics. And, you know, I was some... going to ask you, yeah, do, yeah. I think many uh, many people don't know the value. Uh, well, you're, I will share with you my bias, which I just did. Yeah. Um, but maybe you could speak to listeners about the role of probiotics uh, for someone who's in the hospital taking lots of medications and, and well, anti antibiotics. Medications, you know, they save lives. They're, they're helpful, but they also can disrupt our gut microbiota. Not all, just sometimes. And the theory, I mean, the, the hard thing is that as they study more, they recognize, well, some probiotics work for some people and some don't. So there's no, you're really just guessing. I mean, you could do some genetic testing, but that's another thing that you're probably not going to do in the hospitals. Send a stool sample for, to some specialized lab and get it back. And what does acidophilus make sense or this other one makes sense? They're just going to give you a broad spectrum. But it just helps kind of try to help the good that are left in there. If you've been on a lot of antibiotics, to kind of like regrow back. I mean, that's the theory. You're, you're um, speaking about, so some people might not be aware that you're speaking about the, the uh, what's growing in the gut. gut that what's is growing good. in your gut that helps your immune system. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're recovering from anything, you want to grow, muscle up your immune system. To help and and antibiotics out. usually wipe it out, so you want to be able to yeah. build it back up. Their job is to get rid of the yuck and the collateral damage or some of the good gets lost too. Yeah. Yeah. In doing that process. So if we can add that in, act back in, but you know, if it's tolerable and people like it, I mean, foods that feed your gut are stuff that's in, in fruit and vegetables, beans, the fibery stuff. Basically your gut bugs feed off the fiber. That's why you're, you know, if you do too much, too, there's a there's a there's a too much line we cross too. So you can't just like well, jam in 10,000 salads a day and I have a healthy gut. Like, no, like everything else, there's, there's a point of diminishing return. You know, I'm, I'm wondering with, with the uh, intuitive eating, if this is what you would uh, call what we've been discussing, part of intuitive eating and how somatics uh, relate to that. Okay. So is this what you well, call I think it's a part. So I think that I will call it a, a less fancy word for intuitive eating is honestly eating from hunger and fullness, just being body led. If that makes sense with your food, with some gentle knowledge about how your body works, nutrition, but again, holding it gently. It's fancy word for eating from hunger and fullness, respecting your, honoring your hungry, hunger, respecting your fullness, eating a variety of food, eating for pleasure, not being austere. Enjoy all the different reasons why we eat. We eat for nutrition, for energy, for pleasure, sometimes even for comfort just because it tastes good sometimes, um, socially, those are all valid reasons to eat. And then the somatic part is like really more working with the nervous system of like what's getting in the way of all that. That should be natural. If it's not, something disrupted it. Programming, you know, cultural programming, family programming, healthism, whatever, accidents, that stuff happens. So we use the body you know, we look at where your somebody's dysregulated and how it's impacting the ability to eat that way. What types of relationships with food and eating patterns do you generally see in clients uh, with a history of trauma? All of them. You, you name it, I, I got it. So there's restrictive eating disorders, and they come in all shapes and sizes. So you can't look at a person and not think that they don't not eat or they're really meticulous. So there's restrictive eating disorders. There are binge eating, so maybe not so much binge eating, but just kind of like dysregulated, kind of grazing eating, emotional eating, 
there's a diagnosis called ARFID, which is basically people afraid to eat. And we see that mostly in kids and mostly in males, but females too. And that's more of like a hypervigilance about if I eat this, something bad will happen to me versus it's not as body image related. And that usually happens after accidents. It could be medical things. It could just be had a really terrible, I mean, already a little bit like either neurodivergent or like just sensory defensive and then just a lot of hostility around eating at a young age where it's like I ate, but I only eat enough to get by and I can get out of here kind of kind of thing that can turn into just it's not that I don't want to eat, I'm just I go to eat and then I freeze kind of thing. Or and it goes on like all the spectrum. So it's I would say any kind of eating that causes us to over or underreach for based on what our body needs right now. So it just runs a whole spectrum. Well, uh, talk with many people about as it relates to trauma that when when you froze and and you got numb or you were hypervigilant, it was it was a serving a purpose at the time. Your body oh. was trying to protect you. Um, and you know well, now are you you know are you safe enough um, yeah. to not have How to would be you know? Yeah, state? can you feel that you're safe enough here with me now yeah. in 2022? How would you know inside? Yeah. How would you know inside? If yeah. if any part of you doesn't want to be safe, let it speak. You know, it's not going to get judged. I, I, th I think it's fun to think of the next time of eating something crunchy. To chew, is it chewing on anger or was it just for pleasure? How about something yeah. soft or something chewy? Uh, do you have Could be that too. comments yeah, about where, what that might be related to as well? Our listeners well, might be think interested. Of, okay, so I'm going to do ice cream real quick. So I want you to imagine eating ice cream and the, and the mouthfeel that, close your eyes, and the mouthfeel of it. I'm going to pretend like I'm an alien. I don't know what it tastes like. So you pick your favorite flavor. And you describe to me what it feels like on your lips, on your tongue, in your mouth, the mouthfeel, the temperature, when you swallow it, what do you notice? Shall I tell you? Yeah, please. Without telling you my favorite flavor? You can do whatever you want to. So it is honey, sweet. Even with my eyes closed, I can mm -hmm. see the golden color and know that it is going to be syrupy and it is smooth mm -hmm. and cool. And I had to get my tongue around it real quick because it's starting to melt. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I can feel a couple crunchy nuts that I know I will be able to find. Uh, so okay. So that, those sensations that first couple swallows of that honey, nut, creamy ice cream. You didn't know it was creamy, but sliding down your throat. What emotions does that bring you? Creamy, smooth, honey golden, little crunch. What emotions or yeah, oh, other words you would use for that? Positive. Yeah. Um, happy, being taken care of, um, safe. So Louise, if you have a deficit of that in your life, and you have a deficit of a neural pathway that in just in your your very beginnings, like there's not a frame of reference for that, how to get that, and the only way you ever got it was that. You'd be eating a lot of ice cream. You that would be hard to let go of. Yeah, yeah. You're not. It's not lacking willpower. That's just like this is what's overcoupled for me to get those experiences because. And I'll look at a life and it 100% matches. They have, there's no joy. There's no, they might have a weird, not weird, but like disorganized attachment with people in their life. 
they're not in a job they want to be doing. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And this is the only space. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting. So if someone comes to you and they then describe something that they eat and they have associations that are enormously positive, but they know or they feel for some reason or another that it's too much or they're eating too, too much of it. How then do you go about that with your clients? So, well, the distress is going to give you the last couple of questions. The stress they come in, Tracy, oh my gosh, like I'm out of control. I eat too much ice cream. If I keep this up, I'm going to gain weight. And I'll say, well, then what? Well, then, you know, I'm going to get judged by the world and be alone forever. And, you know, it's catastrophic. And it's real, though, because yeah, they might have had you, a lot of other. extrapolated out. Mm -hmm. It's real because they either had that experience in childhood or they face it in their daily life, maybe, or maybe it's just projection. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, it feels real. So we look at, I'm like, well, I hear you. And, I, and I, I'm not here to get you to eat ice cream every single day. This is not a free-for-all. We want to honor your body. And it wants ice cream, you eat ice cream. If it doesn't want it, we want to know what else it wants and needs. So let's kind of unpack that. So I'll do that little exercise. Tell me the thing. I've never had it. What is the experience? Oh, happy, comforted, and safe. Oh. So how often you I'll ask how often you get that this week or this this day or this week or ever and they're like well, hardly ever they just didn't put it together in their day of what you know because I'll look at well what was happening before the ice cream and look at the day and I'm like okay they I see it they don't see it yet go through this little exercise this is just one of many but it's oh so you never get that huh and then I'll ask well has there ever been anything in the past or the present Besides the ice cream, which is a tool, you can, we can use that for this if we need to. I'm not going to take it away, but is there anything else? And sometimes there is. Like, there will never a time when they, they fished or they rode horses or they did art or whatever it is, but they just don't give it to themselves for whatever yeah, reason yeah. or spaciousness in their life, whatever. And then if they're willing, they feel like this is like, you know, like consent wise, it's like, would we, would you like to explore maybe how we're going to really unpack every detail of how that could even be possible for you because you know when you have a trauma response it's like we do get hypervigilant again oh i can have this thing oh no it's gonna take it away i can't have it so i, I think hard. something that would be yeah. just really um so important for our listeners to understand as as we finish as we wind down is that you know food or, or anything else or for that matter any any substance or any activity really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that there's some awareness is in excess to be able to look at or a it. deficit they're the same or a deficit so, exactly the same people yeah. like they look at their food and they do the exact same thing exact same they'll, thing. they'll have a food they'll, they'll like want that they can't have yeah and all the times they wanted it and they can't i do the same yeah, that, that deprivation that's that it's that deprivation it's like i don't it's always like shame i don't deserve it i'm not worthy yeah there's so, something related to mm -hmm. as as you and I both so interested in in trauma and trauma healing, for for all of us as listeners, if there's anything in excess or in deprivation in our lives, and and with working with you, Tracy, with regard mm -hmm. to food, just to explore it in a really gentle, gentle yeah. way, and a curious Absolutely. way. Yeah, uh, curiosity, and compassion, yeah. and lots of little dose of courage. It's like you'll see that like it's not because you lack willpower. We don't know enough. No, don't flog you're not yourself. Feeling safe enough. Yeah, yeah. No. you're yeah. not. We're not. We're just going to perpetuate something. That's right. You know, e even even more so. It's just really That's beautiful. Right. I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to add that we haven't talked about yet that you might think Goodness. would be useful for people interested in trauma and trauma healing. Well, 
my goodness, we've covered so much today. I don't know how much more I could add except for. We have covered a lot. I think just trusting that, that you know, healing isn't for everybody else. It is definitely a journey. There's going to be lots of loopy loops. And every time that we feel like we're not getting anywhere, if you give yourself some grace to look back and say, wait a minute, the thing I was doing doesn't nearly happen as often, or I'm not as. Um, feeling shackled by it like look at the little things that are more useful whatever it is that you're working through so i just encourage people to um, look at the little things where you have more capacity it's not to be taken for granted to um just be able to slow down i'm like wow i can really notice that today if you could notice yourself noticing that you're actually noticing i know it's convoluted but it's like that's a big deal because maybe you never noticed anything the first half of your life that's you just did what you're supposed to do and be dutiful and then your misery you don't know why it's like it's really good that you're noticing that thank you but something's not right yeah the note that we can notice that we're noticing how what an amazing portal that is for our trauma healing journeys that's right thank you tracy brown thank really you so much for having this me. time with you life can change in the blink of an eye life is so precious. Sending love, hope for everything, obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings of Blink of an Eye podcast. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at season three, episode five, Sweet Savories. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye Podcast is sponsored by I See That, the integrative center for trauma healing, advocacy, and transformation. A nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. I See That provides a national team of SCI specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. I See That also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. I See That will host the inaugural conference, The Science of Trauma, Hope for Trauma Healing, October 5th, 2022. To donate and find out more, visit www.icthat.org. That's I, the letter C, T-H-A-T, 
www.thepeopleshow.org.